Section four of Our Old Home. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Our Old Home by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Section four. Leamington Spa. In the course of several visits and stays of considerable length, we acquired a home-like feeling towards Leamington, and came back thither again and again, chiefly because we had been there before. Wandering and wayside people, such as we had long since become, retain a few of the instincts that belong to a more settled way of life, and often prefer familiar and commonplace objects, for the very reason that they are so, to the dreary strangeness of scenes that might be thought much better worth the seeing. There is a small nest of a place in Leamington, at number 10 Lansdowne Circus, upon which, to this day, my reminiscences are apt to settle as one of the coziest nooks in England, or in the world, not that it had any special charm of its own, but only that we stayed long enough to know it well, and even to grow a little tired of it. In my opinion the very tediousness of home and friends makes a part of what we love them for. If it be not mixed in sufficiently with the other elements of life, there may be mad enjoyment, but no happiness." The modest abode to which I have alluded forms one of a circular range of pretty, moderate-sized two-story houses, all built on nearly the same plan, and each provided with its little grass-plot, its flowers, its tufts of box trimmed into globes and other fantastic shapes, and its verdant hedges shutting the house in from the common drive, and dividing it from its equally cosy neighbors. Coming out of the door, and taking a turn round the circle of sister dwellings, it is difficult to find your way back by any distinguishing individuality of your own habitation. In the centre of the circus is a space fenced in with iron railing, a small play-place and sylvan retreat for the children of the precinct, permeated by brief paths through the fresh English grass, and shadowed by various shrubbery amid which, if you like, you may fancy yourself in a deep seclusion, though probably the mark of eye-shot from the windows of all the surrounding houses. But, in truth, with regard to the rest of the town and the world at large, an abode here is a genuine seclusion, for the ordinary stream of life does not run through this little quiet pool, and few or none of the inhabitants seem to be troubled with any business or outside activities. I used to set them down as half-pay officers, dowagers of narrow income, elderly maiden ladies, and other people of respectability but small account, such as hang on the world's skirts, rather than actually belong to it. The quiet of the place was seldom disturbed except by the grocer and butcher who came to receive orders, or by the cabs, hackney-coaches, and bath-chairs in which the ladies took an infrequent airing or the livery-steed which the retired captain sometimes bestrode for a morning ride, or by the red-coated postman who went his rounds twice a day to deliver letters, and again in the evening ringing a handbell to take letters for the mail. In merely mentioning these slight interruptions of its sluggish stillness, I seemed to myself to disturb too much the atmosphere of quiet that brooded over the spot, whereas its impression upon me was— that the world had never found the way hither, or had forgotten it, and that the fortunate inhabitants were the only ones who possessed the spell-word of admittance. 
Nothing could have suited me better at the time, for I had been holding a position of public servitude which imposed upon me, among a great many lighter duties, the ponderous necessity of being universally civil and sociable. Nevertheless, if a man were seeking the bustle of society, he might find it more readily in Leamington than in most other English towns. It is a permanent watering-place, a sort of institution to which I do not know any close parallel in American life, for such places as Saratoga bloom only for the summer season, and offer a thousand dissimilitudes even then, while Leamington seems to be always in flower, and serves as a home to the homeless all the year round. Its original nucleus, the plausible excuse for the town's coming into prosperous existence, lies in the fiction of a calibiate well, which, indeed, is so far a reality that out of its magical depths have gushed streets, groves, gardens, mansions, shops, and churches, and spread themselves along the banks of the little river Lem. This miracle accomplished, the beneficent fountain has retired beneath a pump-room, and appears to have given up all pretensions to the remedial virtues formerly attributed to it. I know not whether its waters are ever tasted nowadays, but not the less does Leamington, in pleasant Warwickshire, at the very midmost point in England, in a good hunting neighborhood, and surrounded by country seats and castles, continue to be a resort of transient visitors, and the more permanent abode of a class of genteel, unoccupied, well-to-do, but not very wealthy people, such as are hardly known among ourselves. Persons who have no country houses, and whose fortunes are inadequate to a London expenditure, find here, I suppose, a sort of town and country life in one. In its present aspect the town is of no great age. In contrast with the antiquity of many places in its neighborhood, it has a bright new face, and seems almost to smile even amid the somberness of an English autumn. Nevertheless, it is hundreds upon hundreds of years old, if we reckon up that sleepy lapse of time during which it existed as a small village of thatched houses clustered round a priory, and it would still have been precisely such a rural village but for a certain Dr. Jeffson, who lived within the memory of man, and who found out the magic well, and foresaw what fairy wealth might be made to flow from it. A public garden has been laid out along the margin of the Lem, and called the Jeffson Garden, in honor of him who created the prosperity of his native spot. A little way within the garden gate there is a circular temple of Grecian architecture, beneath the dome of which stands a marble statue of the good doctor, very well executed, and representing him with a face of fussy activity and benevolence, just the kind of man, if luck favored him, to build up the fortunes of those about him, or, quite as probably, to blight his whole neighborhood by some disastrous speculation. The Jeffson Garden is very beautiful, like most other English pleasure-grounds, for aided by their moist climate and not too fervid sun, the landscape gardeners excel in converting flat or tame surfaces into attractive scenery, chiefly through the skilful arrangement of trees and shrubbery. An Englishman aims at this effect even in the little patches under the windows of a suburban villa, and achieves it on larger scale in a tract of many acres. The garden is shadowed with trees of a fine growth, standing alone or in dusky groves and dense entanglements, 
pervaded by woodland paths, and, emerging from these pleasant glooms, we come upon a breadth of sunshine where the greensward, so vividly green that it has a kind of luster in it, is spotted with beds of gem-like flowers. Rustic chairs and benches are scattered about, some of them ponderously fashioned out of the stumps of obtruncated trees, and others more artfully made with intertwining branches, or perhaps an imitation of such frail handiwork in iron. In a central part of the garden is an archery ground, where laughing maidens practice at the butts, generally missing their ostensible mark, but, by the mere grace of their action, sending an unseen shaft into some young man's heart. There is space, moreover, within these precincts, for an artificial lake, with a little green island in the midst of it, both lake and island being the haunt of swans, whose aspect and movement in the water are most beautiful and stately, most infirm, disjointed, and decrepit, when, unadvisedly, they see fit to emerge and try to walk upon dry land. In the latter case they look like a breed of uncommonly ill-contrived geese, and I record the matter here for the sake of the moral, that we should never pass judgment on the merits of any person or thing, unless we behold them in the sphere and circumstances to which they are specially adapted. In still another part of the garden there is a labyrinthine maze, formed of an intricacy of hedge-bordered walks, involving himself in which a man might wander for hours inextricably within a circuit of only a few yards. It seemed to me a sad emblem of the mental and moral perplexities in which we sometimes go astray, petty in scope, yet large enough to entangle a lifetime, and bewilder us with a weary movement, but no genuine progress. The lem, the high-complexioned lem, as Drayton calls it, after drowsing across the principal street of the town beneath a handsome bridge, skirts along the margin of the garden without any perceptible flow. Heretofore I had fancied the Concord the laziest river in the world, but now assign that amiable distinction to the little English stream. Its water is by no means transparent, but has a greenish goose-puddly hue, which, however, accords well with the other colouring and characteristics of the scene, and is disagreeable neither to sight nor smell. Certainly this river is a perfect feature of that gentle picturesqueness in which England is so rich, sleeping as it does beneath a margin of willows that droop into its bosom, and other trees of deeper verdure than our own country can boast, inclining lovingly over it. On the garden side it is bordered by a shadowy secluded grove, with winding paths among its boskiness, affording many a peep at the river's imperceptible lapse and tranquil gleam, and on the opposite shore stands the priory church, with its churchyard full of shrubbery and tombstones. The business portion of the town clusters about the banks of the Lem, and is naturally densest around the well to which the modern settlement owes its existence. Here are the commercial inns, the post-office, the furniture-dealers, the ironmongers, and all the heavy and homely establishments that connect themselves even with the airiest modes of human life, while upward from the river, by a long and gentle ascent, rises the principal street, which is very bright and cheerful in its physiognomy, and adorned with shop-fronts almost as splendid as those of London, though on a diminutive scale. There are likewise side streets and cross streets, 
many of which are bordered with the beautiful Warwickshire elm, a most unusual kind of adornment for an English town, and spacious avenues wide enough to afford room for stately groves, with footpaths running beneath the lofty shade, and rooks cawing and chattering so high in the treetops that their voices get musical before reaching the earth. The houses are mostly built in blocks and ranges, in which every separate tenement is a repetition of its fellow, though the architecture of the different ranges is sufficiently various. Some of them are almost palatial in size and sumptuousness of arrangement. Then on the outskirts of the town there are detached villas, enclosed within that separate domain of high stone fence and embowered shrubbery which an Englishman so loves to build and plant around his abode, presenting to the public only an iron gate, with a gravelled carriage-drive winding away towards the half-hidden mansion. Whether in street or suburb, Leamington may fairly be called beautiful, and at some points magnificent, but by and by you become doubtfully suspicious of a somewhat unreal finery. It is pretentious, though not glaringly so. It has been built with malice aforethought, as a place of gentility and enjoyment. Moreover, splendid as the houses look, and as comfortable as they often are, there is a nameless something about them, betokening that they have not grown out of human hearts, but are the creations of a skilfully applied human intellect. No man has reared any of them, whether stately or humble, to be his lifelong residence, wherein to bring up his children who are to inherit it as a home. They are nicely contrived lodging-houses, one and all, the best as well as the shabbiest of them, and therefore inevitably lack some nameless property that a home should have. This was the case with our own little snuggery in Lansdowne Circus, as with all the rest. It had not grown out of anybody's individual need, but was built to let or sell, and was therefore like a ready-made garment, a tolerable fit, but only tolerable. All these blocks, ranges, and detached villas are adorned with the finest and most aristocratic names that I have found anywhere in England, except perhaps in Bath, which is the great metropolis of that second-class gentility with which watering-places are chiefly populated. Lansdowne Crescent, Lansdowne Circus, Lansdowne Terrace, Regent Street, Warwick Street, Clarendon Street, the Upper and Lower Parade— such are a few of the designations. Parade, indeed, is a well-chosen name for the principal street, along which the population of the idle town draws itself out for daily review and display. I only wish that my descriptive powers would enable me to throw off a picture of the scene at a sunny noontide, individualizing each character with a touch, the great people alighting from their carriages at the principal shop-doors, the elderly ladies and infirm Indian officers drawn along in bath-chairs, the comely rather than pretty English girls, with their deep healthy bloom, which an American taste is apt to deem fitter for a milkmaid than for a lady, the moustached gentlemen with frogged surtouts and a military air, the nursemaids and chubby children, but no chubbier than our own, and scampering on slenderer legs, the sturdy figure of John Bull in all varieties and of all ages, but ever with a stamp of authenticity somewhere about him. To say the truth, I have been holding the pen over my paper, 
purposing to write a descriptive paragraph or two about the throng on the principal parade of Leamington, so arranging it as to present a sketch of the British out-of-door aspect on a morning walk of gentility. But I find no personages quite sufficiently distinct and individual in my memory to supply the materials of such a panorama. Oddly enough, the only figure that comes fairly forth to my mind's eye is that of a dowager, one of hundreds whom I used to marvel at, all over England, but who have scarcely a representative among our own ladies of autumnal life, so thin, careworn, and frail as age usually makes the latter. I have heard a good deal of the tenacity with which English ladies retain their personal beauty to a late period of life, but not to suggest that an American eye needs use and cultivation before it can quite appreciate the charm of English beauty at any age, it strikes me that an English lady of fifty is apt to become a creature less refined and delicate, so far as her physique goes, than anything we Western people class under the name of woman. She has an awful ponderosity of frame, not pulpy, like the looser development of our few fat women, but massive with solid beef and streaky tallow, so that, though struggling manfully against the idea, you inevitably think of her as made up of steaks and sirloins. When she walks, her advance is elephantine. When she sits down, it is on a great round space of her maker's footstool, where she looks as if nothing could ever move her. She imposes awe and respect by the muchness of her personality, to such a degree that you probably credit her with far greater moral and intellectual force than she can fairly claim. Her visage is usually grim and stern, seldom positively forbidding, yet calmly terrible, not merely by its breadth and weight of feature, but because it seems to express so much well-founded self-reliance, such acquaintance with the world, its toils, troubles, and dangers, and such sturdy capacity for trampling down a foe. Without anything positively salient or actively offensive, or, indeed, unjustly formidable to her neighbors, she has the effect of a seventy-four gunship in time of peace, for, while you assure yourself that there is no real danger, you cannot help thinking how tremendous would be her onset, if pugnaciously inclined, and how futile the effort to inflict any counter-injury. She certainly looks tenfold, nay, a hundredfold, better able to take care of herself than our slender-framed and haggard womankind, but I have not found reason to suppose that the English dowager of fifty has actually greater courage, fortitude, and strength of character than our women of similar age, or even a tougher physical endurance than they. Morally she is strong, I suspect only in society, and in the common routine of social affairs, and would be found powerless and timid in any exceptional strait that might call for energy outside the conventionalities amid which she has grown up. You can meet this figure in the street and live, and even smile at the recollection, but conceive of her in a ballroom, with the bare, brawny arms that she invariably displays there, and all the other corresponding development, such as is beautiful in the maiden blossom, but a spectacle to howl at in such an overblown cabbage-rose as this. Yet somewhere in this enormous bulk there must be hidden the modest, slender, violet nature of a girl, 
whom an alien mass of earthliness has unkindly overgrown. For an English maiden in her teens, though very seldom so pretty as our own damsels, possesses, to say the truth, a certain charm of half-blossom and delicately folded leaves, and tender womanhood shielded by maidenly reserves, with which, somehow or other, our American girls often fail to adorn themselves during an appreciable moment. It is a pity that the English violet should grow into such an outrageously developed peony as I have attempted to describe. I wonder whether a middle-aged husband ought to be considered as legally married to all the accretions that have overgrown the slenderness of his bride since he led her to the altar, and which make her so much more than he ever bargained for. Is it not a sounder view of the case that the matrimonial bond cannot be held to include the three-fourths of the wife that had no existence when the ceremony was performed? And as a matter of conscience and good morals, ought not an English married pair to insist upon the celebration of a silver wedding at the end of twenty-five years, in order to legalize and mutually appropriate that corporeal growth of which both parties have individually come into possession since they were pronounced one flesh? End of section four.